Well, I'm excited to be in our Game Changer series again this week. If you have your Bibles, take them to turn to Acts chapter one as we're walking through the book of Acts. It really is a game changer to read about the New Testament church, to read about the, the predominance of Jesus in the New Testament church. And today we're going to look at game-changing decisions. What did the New Testament disciples do as they began to move forward? So Acts chapter 1. By the way, how many of you went to our marriage retreat, which took place at 9.30 today and last week? Just, stand, just raise your hand if you would. Look at that crowd going to a marriage retreat, building their marriage. I heard, I heard the Drapers did a phenomenal job. Let's give them a and did a great job and crowded, crowded in that, in that place. Lots of couples in there. I commend you for wanting to build your marriages and your relationships. It's such an important thing. Let's stand together as we read God's Word beginning in verse 15 of Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1 verse 15. This is uh, the place where Peter and the disciples began to move forward after their realization that the church really was about to form. It really was going to be a continuation of the life and ministry of Jesus. They were praying. They were looking for the presence of Jesus, for the power of Jesus, for the indwelling Holy Spirit that was about to come. And in between the moments of realizing Jesus' command to them before he ascended and the coming of the Holy Spirit, decisions needed to be made. And in verse 15, it begins to describe that. At this time, Peter stood up in the midst of the brethren. A gathering of about 120 persons was there together. Now, they're up in the upper room together. And he said, brethren, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit foretold by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was counted among us and received his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the price of his wickedness with those 30 pieces of silver. And falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all of his intestines gushed out. This was definitely a bad day for Judas in every way. And it became known to all who were living in Jerusalem so that in their own language, that field was called Hakadama, that is the field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms. Let his homestead be made desolate and let no one dwell in it. And let another man take his office. Therefore, it is necessary of the men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning with the baptism of John until the day he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So they put forth two men, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice and Matthias. And they prayed and said, Lord, you know the hearts of all men. Show which one of these two that you have chosen to occupy this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they drew lots for them and the lot fell to Matthias and he was added to the 11 apostles. Man, this is an interesting passage of scripture that has so much for us today. Father, today I pray that you would speak to us by the power of your Holy Spirit. Show us things that... Only you can reveal. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated if you would. You know, you don't really think about the power and the impact of decisions that you make right now down the road. But once you make a decision today, in five years, ten years, if you stick with that decision, it's going to take you on a trajectory either closer to Christ or further away from him. To be either more like Jesus or less and less like Jesus. In fact, the more time passes, if you make the wrong decision, the further away from where you ought to be, you'll be. Whenever I think about decision making, I think about the flight 
that captured my attention in 1983 is a Korean airliner, Flight 007. Some of you remember this. It was flying from Anchorage to Seoul, Korea, and shortly after getting into the sky with 239 passengers, the pilot set the course, but they set the course one degree off the distance or the direction they should set it in. And so it was not noticeable at first. One degree off, that's all. But one degree off, while you're flying 600 miles an hour at 30,000 feet, uh, becomes quite a distance away from the course you need to be on. And from Anchorage to Seoul, there's this dangerous place called Soviet airspace. And with a few hours after takeoff, this one degree off the direction they should have been going on had taken them hundreds of miles into Soviet airspace. The Soviet Air Force was at heightened tensions because of different things happening around the globe and saw this as an invasion, possibly a spy plane, and shot it down from the sky with a MiG fighter jet. All 239 on board died because the pilot set the direction one degree off course, just one degree. Now, that's kind of a radical illustration, but the truth of the matter is, if you get one degree off course with where you should be heading in life, you're going you're to find yourself far, far from where you need to be. That's why decision-making is so incredibly important. That's why you should never make decisions apart from listening to God, hearing God, looking at God's principles, learning to listen to the voice of God. All those things are pretty important, and that's where these disciples were. In between the ascension of Jesus and before the Holy Spirit came to fall upon them and to indwell in them, there's this period of time where decisions had to make, take place. So these disciples were having conversations. They were waiting for the Spirit, and they were talking about what needed to happen next. Now, I know this. I know that the disciples were captivated by the mission of Jesus, which was to help make those disciples more like Him. And it's inevitable that in that upper room, the conversation turned to, what would Jesus do? I'm pretty sure they didn't think of the bracelets and the T-shirts and WWJD, but they were asking the question, what would Jesus do? Because for the last three years, we've been following Jesus, but the last three years, we've just looked to him. The last three years, everything he says do, we do. We just follow him. We just listen to him. We just obey him. And now Jesus has ascended. The spirit that's been promised has not come yet to us. What do we do? They knew they needed to replicate some things. They knew they needed to do some things that Jesus taught them to do. By the way, the word replicate is an important word for us. The word replicate, the definition of it is to make an exact copy of, to reproduce. If you read Acts chapter 1, verse 1, you'll see that the church is supposed to be nothing more, nothing less than an exact copy of the life and ministry of Jesus. Because Luke, when he writes the book of Acts, having already written the book of Luke, says, I began in that first account, Theopolis, to talk about all the things that Jesus began to say and do. Now we're going to talk about how he's going to continue to live through you. That's what the book of Acts is all about. So replicate was very much in their mind, and there are some things that they were replicating in this passage that are incredibly important. So let's look at some of those. First of all, they from the beginning made it obvious we must replicate the biblical mindset that Jesus gave us. The biblical mindset. Jump down to verse 16. Peter stands up. Peter, in his forceful personality as a leader, stands up. And here's what he says to them. These are the first instructional words that take place after the ascension of Jesus. Brethren, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit foretold, he says in verse 15. 
and 16 rather, by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. And he goes on and talks about the prophecy that you find in Psalms chapter 69 about all that Judas did. But what I want you to notice today is how natural it was for Peter and the apostles to depend upon the Holy Spirit and depend on the Old Testament scriptures. Now, the reason that, that Peter was willing to start with Old Testament scriptures is because that's exactly what Jesus had been teaching them. That's all they had at the moment. The books of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John have not yet been written. They don't have the book of Acts yet because they're about to live it. All the epistles that take place later on are going to be written on the basis of what these men said and did through the power of the Holy Spirit. All they have are the scrolls and the Old Testament prophets and the laws, the Old Testament scriptures, in other words. And the reason they began to look back to the Old Testament is because Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament, because Jesus quoted the Old Testament, because Jesus was always referring to the Old Testament. Testament, and he stood on the Old Testament. And so for them, it was very natural to look back at what the Scripture says in the moment of making a decision. If you have your Bibles open to Luke, take them to Luke chapter 24, verse 44 and verse 45. Because Luke says this in the Gospel of Luke before he says what we just read in the book of Acts. Jesus said to them, according to Luke 24, verse 44, these are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all the things that are written about me and the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Now this is why Peter looked back. And then the scripture says in verse 45 of Luke 24, then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. So here's Peter having had his mind open to understand the Old Testament scriptures, the prophecies regarding Jesus, the truth of the law, the truth of the prophets, and even the prophecy regarding Judah, he stands up and he specifically says, I see what Judas did as an act of prophecy fulfilled along with his death. How he hung, how he was cut down, how his bowels opened up as he fell down on the rocks below, and then the new instruction. All that came out of Jesus enlightening Peter to the Old Testament Scripture. Now, here's the conclusion that we all need to draw about the church and the Old Testament, and here it is. The early church followed the lead of Jesus himself. They looked to, they depended on the, Holy, on the, on the Old Testament for foundational inspired truth. I'm going to say this again. The early church, following the lead of Jesus himself, looked to and depended on the Old Testament for foundational inspired truth. I want you to let that sink in for just a few moments. I want you to understand today the Old Testament is foundational to the New Testament. These are the building blocks of the truth from God that help us understand all the words of Jesus, not just the prophecies about him, but why Jesus said what he did and specifically why Jesus had to come and why he had to die and why he rose again the third day. I mean, it's a critical to understanding everything about God. And interestingly enough, there are people today, voices today in the church, books that you'll read, preachers you'll hear, different teachers that bring this up that say this. They say we should unhitch the Old Testament from the New Testament. We should not look to the Old Testament for guidance, for truth, for revelation today because the New Testament has encompassed the Old Testament. We don't need what the Old Testament says anymore. And I have to ask the question, why would anyone say that? The reason people today would say something like that, the reason people would want to eliminate 
the validity of the Old Testament is to eliminate what seems archaic to modern culture. The laws and the statutes regarding sexuality, regarding marriage, regarding abortion. What happens if the church does not look to the Old Testament for the creation account, for miracles, for how God judged the nations that turned their back on him, for prophecy of Jesus, for prophecy of the end time? What happens if we stop looking to the Old Testament as inspired revelation of truth? If we start removing the Old Testament, we have no idea what God says about genders. We have no idea what God says about marriage. We have no idea what God says about miracles or about creation or about, about judgment, about all those things. We eradicate those things when we unhitch the Old Testament from the New Testament and we don't understand why all these things are unfolding today. Sometimes today, I look around at our world, our culture, even among Christendom, and I, and I wonder, how is it that you're so confused? All you have to do is read what God has said and the revelation that God has laid down and has been present for thousands of years. You know, just the other day, I was reading in Exodus chapter one, 21 and chapter 22, and this is part of my daily reading, and, and I noticed one of those old laws and this particular old law had to do with what happens when two men fight. And the scenario that is depicted is if two men quarrel, if they fight, and they bump into a woman who is with child, who is pregnant, and the one that bumps into the woman who is pregnant causes injury to the baby that's yet unborn. Whatever injury that has happened to that baby will be exacted upon that man. And if that baby loses his life, then the man loses his life. And I thought, wow, what a strong reaction. God must believe that there's a real human being in that womb. God must believe that that's a real person that he has plans for and that he has, has a desire to protect. And it must be that God wants us to protect the unborn if we shouldn't even fight around a woman who's pregnant for fear of injuring the child. Take away the Old Testament. We don't have any concept of what God thinks about certain things in the Bible or certain things that we deal with in culture today. It's incredibly important that we do not unhitch the Old Testament. Keep that Old Testament hitched to your New Testament. Keep the Old Testament foundational to your New Testament. Do not lose sight of all the words that God has spoken because all Scripture is inspired, every word of it. Are you with me today? You ought to clap at that one. You ought to really stand on that one. This is the Bible. This is the Bible, folks. So here's Peter and the disciples as a first act saying, well, let's look at the Old Testament. Somebody should have shaken Peter and said, wait a minute, don't you know you're not in the Old Testament era anymore? You're about to be in the New Testament. And Peter would have said, Jesus did it. If it's good enough for Jesus, it's good enough for me. He looked to the Old Testament. Now, we need to understand something about the Old Testament today. The New Testament does not negate the Old Testament. It's built upon it. The New Testament doesn't replace the Old Testament truths. It brings grace and mercy to us who disobey them. In the Old Testament, you violate certain commandments. The Bible says that death is the punishment. The New Testament says the death that is the punishment to that sin has been satisfied in the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. That's how the New Testament comments on the Old Testament. 
that we're all, in a sense, worthy of death. We're all sinners. And no matter what we've done, no matter what Old Testament or New Testament principles we have violated or commands that we have violated, we all find our forgiveness. We all find mercy and grace in the person of Jesus Christ. So that means that we're not at odds between the Old Testament and the New Testament. We understand how they link together, how they bridge together, and they bridge together at the cross of Jesus. Jesus only affirmed the Old Testament. He only validated it. And he took it further into the heart from the outward law to the inward motivation. If you move the foundation stones of the Bible, then the whole house crumbles down. Do not touch those foundational stones. Years ago, an incredible illustration was given in a message of great importance. The story was that an ancient king left his castle in the hands of a capable and faithful servant before going away for a long period of time. While I'm gone, he said to his servant, protect the castle at all costs. Whatever you have to do, protect the castle. When the king returned many, many months later, he saw an imposing wall had been built around the castle and at first was pleased with the resourcefulness of the servant until he entered the gates and discovered that the stone needed to build the wall were from the castle itself and the castle was no more. And my point is very similar. If you will remove the foundation stones because some are offended by them, the house they hold up will soon collapse and there will be no avenue of grace and no avenue of mercy for them. Don't touch the foundation stones. Respect them, read them, understand them. So first of all, they were replicating a biblical mindset from day one. We must replicate a biblical mindset in our churches. We can't move away from scripture. No part of scripture do we move away from. Secondly, they replicated healthy leaders. Look at verse 22. As they realized they needed to replace Judas. We read about Judas leading up to verse 20. And then in 21, therefore it's necessary that of the men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning with the baptism of John until to the day that he was taken up from it, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. Very simple but important. And that is what they said. Necessary due to the demise of Judas. Judas was done in by human nature, by internal greed. Judas was committing acts of treason. He was a traitor to the Lord Jesus Christ and to the disciples. But no matter what it is, we're always in the point at the church as always replicating and calling out new leaders. Not all are traitors after all. Sometimes leaders age out. Sometimes they move on to other kingdom adventures. Sometimes they self-disqualify themselves or they're not able in some way to serve. The church is always needing new leaders and they bring with them new passions and new insights. And that's why it's encouraging to, to watch a, a group of deacons on the stage who are being set aside and being prepared to serve because it's a group of new leaders that add all that God has done in their life to an existing group of leaders. And we just need to always be looking for new leaders. But what kind of leaders do we need to be looking at? We have some principles here. Look at, look at these lines. Amazing. In verse 21, Peter said, of all those who accompanied us, when Jesus went out in and out among us. In other words, Peter says, we need to find someone in this group of 120 who have a personal knowledge of Jesus. 
Did you know today that you can know something about the historical Jesus? You can read books about Jesus. You can even read the Bible where it talks about Jesus and not know him personally. The Bible speaks about eternal life. Jesus himself in John 17, this is eternal life that they may know thee, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. That, that we know Jesus is a key qualification for faithful leadership. A personal knowledge of Jesus, a personal walk with Jesus. In Acts chapter six, verse three, when they set aside the first deacons, they said, find from among you men who are full of the Holy Spirit and of wisdom. Let their lives have demonstrated that they know something about Jesus. Leaders know Jesus. Leaders spend time with Jesus. Leaders learn from Jesus until he returns. And so their very first qualification was not how much money do they have, not how old are they, not how, how good their reputation is in the community. Their first qualification for this new leader is, does he know Jesus well? And let me just say, that hasn't changed. People who know Jesus well can make incredible leaders. Secondly, the Bible says that he said, must become a witness with us. This new person, whoever it will be, must become a witness. It's a mandatory thing. It's priority. They must become a witness. Now, if you remember, Acts chapter one, verse eight, has just been basically spoken by Jesus to the disciples before they go up to the upper room. And in this statement, Jesus says, you shall be, receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and even to the uttermost part of the earth. And so the New Testament church was, was founded on that kind of command and these disciples were very aware of that. Whatever else we do, he has to know Jesus. And, and the other thing he has to be willing to do is uh, be an eyewitness with us, be a bold witness with us, be a courageous witness of, of, uh, with us of the resurrection of Jesus because our Outside this upper room, people will not believe Jesus is alive. They will not believe that we ought to be following Jesus. There'll be a culture that throws back at us. But this person must be willing to be a witness of Jesus Christ. Why? Because if people do not hear about Jesus, they are forever cut off from God without him. And it's so incredibly important for the salvation of mankind, salvation of the world, for men and women and young people to know about the reality of Jesus. Know Jesus. Be a witness of Jesus. I, I'm, I have a goal. I've always had this goal, but never have I been more um, convinced that it's a good goal, that the entire church of Jesus needs to be a witness of the Lord Jesus Christ. And especially the leaders must lead the way. If you're a leader here at First Julius, if you're a leader here at Cross City Church, First Julius or North, wherever you serve, then it's very important for you to be an ongoing active witness of Jesus. Know how to share the gospel, be willing to share the gospel, be willing to have gospel conversations with people because apart from the gospel, there's no hope for our world. And we know that above all. And in the early New Testament days, they said he must be a witness. We can't have some guy that's not willing to talk about the resurrection of Jesus. We can't have some guy that's not willing to have a conversation that may even be a difficult one. If he's not willing to say, I know Jesus is real, come to him and be saved. All of us, 100% of us in this room and in this church need to be witnesses for Jesus. Then a third thing he said, with the two word phrase, with us must become a witness with us. Now, in the original languages, there are two ways to express this. One is the word soon, which is translated with, and the other is the word meta, 
which is also translated with. And the way that the New Testament authors word it in the original language gives a certain strength or force to the word with. The word meta in the New Testament basically says you are with someone side by side. You are sitting meta with somebody that's next to you today. You are an individual sitting next to another individual. You're both distinctly different individuals, but you're with somebody else. But if the word soon had been used, it would have been a different kind of force. The force of soon is they're not side by side, they're intertwined. They're inseparable. I call this the biscuit word because if ever you're making biscuits, you take all of the ingredients to make biscuits with, to make bread or biscuits with, and you place them side by side. They are meta. They are side by side. But once you mix them together, they are soon. They are all mixed together. You can always pull one out if they're just side by side meta, but once you've mixed them all together, you can't take the flour out of the mix. You can't take the baking powder out of the mix. You can't take anything out of the mix. I don't know if any of those things are even in the mix because I'm not a cook. But if they ran, you can't take them out. Soon. Now, what's the importance of this? Having lost a traitor, they are now going to replace him. And they are not going to replace him with another traitor. Think about this. Think about the context. It's a code word for not just with us, but really with us. They must be intertwined with us. They must be in agreement with us. They must be aligned with us. They must be co-laborers with us. They're not about to replace a traitor with someone who was on the fence about the mission, on the fence about the other leaders. It didn't work out very well for Judas. He was with Jesus, but not with Jesus. Listen to me very carefully. When someone conspires against God-called leadership, it never ends well, nor should it. In war, during war times, you know what they do with traitors? People who commit acts of treason, they execute them. Pretty radical. There's a reason for that. Because no organization can survive with traitors. The message of the classic book by Dante named Inferno, some of you had to read it in college, is that betrayal is one of the worst things that you could do to somebody. It's so bad that Dante put it as the lowest level of hell in his Inferno book. And the dark, frozen lake of hell's ninth circle, traitors of friends, family, guests, and nation are all trapped, each alone in an icy cage alongside the greatest traitor of them all, Satan. This is in an article by a person named D.C. McAllister describing this book. Some think that pride was at the root of Judas, betrayal of Jesus. He put his own status and love of money above Jesus' life. Judas wasn't simply a follower of Jesus, not completely. He was his friend, but maybe Judas kind of loved Jesus at one point. We don't know. We do know that he put his own self-interest over that of his Lord's life, and he received 30 pieces of silver for his treachery. In the end, he killed himself. Dante depicts Judas as being one of the three traitors whom Satan eternally mauls. I mean, this is a, this is a messy book to read. Here's the point. Traitor is seen by most people as the lowest form of any act of a human being. So the New Testament church said, no more of that. Let's find someone who's with us. Let's find someone who's with Jesus. Let's find someone who will not be led astray, who will not follow other agendas, because if we're going to change the course of the world, we must be together. 
It's very simple. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure that out. Together we can do what we can never do when we're all separate. And so there was a healthy leader set aside. His name was Matthias. And finally, there was something else that I want you to remember as we walk out of here in a few moments. There was a dependence on prayer. They were replicating the prayer emphasis that Jesus gave them. The Bible says in verse 24, they prayed and said, you Lord knows the hearts of all men. Show which one of these two you've chosen. So they're praying with one mind. They're praying for the power and the presence of Jesus. They're praying in anticipation that he's going to come through and then they're listening for Jesus to reveal who this person is. Now you say, but they cast lots after that. Yes, and it's the last time they ever cast a lot in the Bible that we have record of. In the Old Testament, there was that practice of casting lots when there was one of two to choose between. And out of these two that came out of the 120 in the upper room, they believed that both of these men were qualified, but they cast lots, asking God to let the lot fall on the one who would go forward. And Matthias was the one. You know, David, we really don't roll dice. We don't cast lots. Because from Pentecost onward, the Holy Spirit has come up on every single believer and now dwells in every single believer and we can hear the voice of God. We can. I'm bold in saying that. I'm courageous in saying that. But Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice and they follow me. I believe you can hear the voice of God. I believe you can know his will. And because we can, we pray and we ask and we say, God, tell us your will. They prayed the Holy Spirit would come upon them and he did. They prayed and they baptized 3,000 people who were converted at Pentecost. They prayed and they set the city in an uproar. They prayed and they recalled the people who turned the world upside down. I love it. What if we prayed? What if we prayed and asked the Holy Spirit to direct our lives? What if we prayed and asked God's Holy Spirit to help us reach 3,000 more for Christ? What if we prayed and send the city in an uproar? What if we prayed and they would say later about us, they turned the world upside down? How about that? How about that? That dependence on prayer. So let me ask you, what if? What if you began to pray? like they did? What if we began to depend like they did? What if we came together the way they did? Simple question. Is the same God who led them the same God we worship today, yes or no? Is the same Holy Spirit who, who eventually filled them the same Holy Spirit that fills you today, yes or no? Is the mission the same, yes or no? Is the world just as lost, yes or no? Are we still the people who bring the message to the lost world, yes or no? Are you gonna be counted among those disciples who are with Jesus, yes or no? Absolutely, absolutely. I want you to bow your head for just a moment. I'm gonna ask our counselors to come forward right now. And as our counselors come forward and as they stand at the front and look out to the congregation, I want an opportunity for you today to ask the what if. Maybe it's been a while since you've thought about these things thinking about things biblically, thinking about being a healthy leader or a healthy member of our church or a healthy member of the body of Christ. Maybe it's been a while since you've thought about the dependence on prayer. Maybe you don't know Jesus today in a personal way and, and know today you need to know him. Realize you need to get to know him. You know, the amazing thing about this huge, seemingly complex life of knowing Jesus personally or knowing a God who is invisible personally is that it's really simple. 
It seems so complicated, but it's not. God requires you to believe by faith. Well, today, the way you would respond to an invitation to come to know Jesus is just to respond by faith. I don't have all the answers. I don't have all the T's crossed or the I's dotted, but I know I need to know Jesus. And so I'm gonna take a simple step of faith. I'm gonna talk to someone. I'm gonna pray with them. I'm gonna ask them to help me invite Christ into my life to be my Lord and Savior. I want to experience Jesus today. And here's what I can say. After 30 some years of ministry, I can say, people that take steps of faith like that never regret it, never, ever regret it. In fact, they take steps of faith and they come to know Jesus and he reveals himself to them and he manifests himself to them. He begins to lead them and guide them and their eyes are open to the scripture. They begin to know what it means to have a healthy walk with God. That's what I want for you. Father, in Jesus' name today, as we begin to pray and call on people to respond, I ask that you move in every heart. Give people boldness to not fear walking just a few steps, to pray a prayer to invite you into their lives, to come back to you if they've been away, whatever it might be. Father, today, Holy Spirit, move among us. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand with me?